our regular commentator, Cambridge University consultant, clinical virologist, Dr. Chris Smith, is back with the latest COVID-19 science. And to answer your questions, thank you. Uh, hi, Chris. How are you? Hello, Kim. I'm really well. How about you? I'm very well. Nice to talk to you again. Tell me, England's lifted, as we know, most restrictions vis-a-vis COVID-19. The number of new cases seems to be soaring. I have read two reports. One, hospitalisation rates are better than expected. Two, hundreds of fully vaccinated people in England have been hospitalised with the Delta variant. Can you comment on either of those reports? Can they both be true? They sound iffy to me, Kim. Um, The situation is that, yes, we have completely opened things up, although people are still being pretty cautious, I have to say. And that opening up happened on the 19th of July. Remember, it was deferred by about a month because the original date slated for doing that was the 21st of June. But we still had quite a way to go with vaccinations. And so given that we had quite a lot of disease activity still, the decision was made to wait four weeks and to really drive home the vaccines amongst the vulnerable groups and then go for it on July the 19th. Many people predicted that there would be a huge surge in cases. And indeed, we were seeing climbing rates. And in fact, we peaked at 60,000 cases per day, which is still lower than where we've seen in the past, but it was still pretty high. And those are the ones we did know about. Remember that about half of cases with the coronavirus, probably, and that's a conservative estimate, are not known, not reported, not documented, because half of the time people have no symptoms, so they don't get tested. So it peaked at around 60,000. And everyone was saying, well, we're now looking at next stop 100,000, possibly a quarter of a million cases a day. Hospital uh, admissions, sure as eggs is eggs, will follow and then deaths to boot. And what actually happened is that the whole thing turned a corner and has been plummeting. And it touched last weekend about 21,000 a day. So that's a third of where it had peaked in terms of known cases. It's hovering around about 30,000 cases a day at the moment. But our R value has come right down. It's either slightly less than one or slightly above one. But it's somewhere sitting on one, which shows that the outbreak is not expanding and not inflating, which has surprised many given that actually people are doing more, more often with more other people, which should be a recipe for causing an expansion of the outbreak. And then the really, really, I think, cause for optimism kicks in, which is you look at how many people are in hospital. And the answer is that unlike January, where we had 100,000 cases a day and we had 1,500 losses of life per day, and we had nearly 50% of our NHS beds, one bed in two or three across the entire NHS with 150,000 beds in total provision was occupied by a coronavirus patient, that number is now very low indeed. A few percent of our NHS beds have got coronavirus patients in them. Most of the time there are cases but there are now not consequences and that's really fantastic and the data we suggest uh, we have uh, suggests that these vaccines are about 95% effective at uh, preventing people developing severe disease if they catch the infection. Now flipping that round who are the people who are in hospital, we're we're getting about 800, 900 people going to hospital per day, but they're not staying there very long. They are getting better and getting out. But the vast majority of them are actually unvaccinated people. And the vast majority of the people who are having any kind of consequences are those unvaccinated people. And younger people are much more heavily represented than older people now. 
And that's a reflection on the fact that we came to vaccinate the younger people last, so there has been a lower take-up there so far, but also there's a degree of reticence towards vaccination in those younger people. About uh, a third of the three million or so people under the age of 30 haven't availed themselves of vaccination, and they are disproportionately now accounting for our cases. So as a result, we're seeing more of those younger age groups represented in hospitalisations than we did previously, just on the basis of the statistics. But on the whole, I think we're, we're seeing quite a rosy picture, actually, and I feel much more optimistic than I have in a very long time. That's good news. Just let me check this article then, because it quotes Public Health England as saying that hundreds of fully vaccinated people have been hospitalised with the highly contagious Delta coronavirus variant. Is this not the case? Well, what we are seeing is that people will see some breakthrough. And uh, I mean, I myself have dealt with in our hospital outbreaks of individuals in hospital who have got coronavirus, but they're not symptomatic. So we have to be very careful how we interpret these figures, because if you just ask uh, data across the NHS, how many cases of coronavirus are there in vaccinated people in hospital right now? You're going to pull in with that net a whole bunch of people that don't have any symptoms and coronavirus isn't their problem, but they might have caught it in hospital or they might have caught it on the way to hospital. And it's not their problem. Their problem is the heart attack they went in with, for example. So, uh, yes, we're seeing people who have been double vaccinated catching the infection. That's definitely happening. We're getting some breakthrough. But what we're not seeing, at the certainly at the same rate, is people who were potentially very vulnerable before catching it, becoming really unwell and then either having the consequences of a long stay in hospital or worse. That has definitely turned the corner and that's not happening. A lot of people are asking, this is a specific question about the Pfizer vaccine, which we have in New Zealand. What is the optimum period between the first shot and the second shot? There seems to be a new Oxford study <clears throat> that suggests that the optimum spacing is six to eight weeks. What do you think? Well, I spoke to Matthew Snape's team, including him and Robert Shaw, who's uh, a young doctor who's doing research on this. And they've been running what's called the Comcov trial. And they've recruited lots of people and given them different vaccines in different orders. And they've correlated what you get with what spacing and what sorts of symptomatology in terms of side effects and what sort of outcome. And they've put all this together. And they've published this as a preliminary set of findings in recent weeks and and I, I sort of quiz them a bit more in detail about their instincts and what the data are suggesting to them. And if you cast your mind back to January, when the UK first announced that it was going to change the dates between the two vaccines, there was an outcry across the world. Dr Fauci in America said this was very, very dodgy and very dubious behaviour and that this is, you know, Pfizer themselves said, well, you know, this is, this is dodgy. And, and now the whole world is copying because what they achieved by doing that was to prove that actually you don't need to just have four weeks. In fact, if you lengthen the duration, the, the intensity of protection may increase. It may fortify, which is what we anticipated might happen, but we needed the day to prove it. And somewhere between eight weeks and 12 weeks, there probably is a sweet spot. We don't know 100% yet, because this is important to compare apples with apples, because 
when we're giving people these vaccines, we're giving different age cohorts the vaccines, and we're also giving different groups of people at different times, different spacings between them to react to availability, to disease activity and so on, which is why some people got a four-week gap, some people got a 12-week gap, and some people have since had an eight-week gap. So pulling all this together, what we are definitely finding is, and as the Oxford group are showing, you do get very good protection. In fact, you get the best levels of antibodies produced by two doses of Pfizer's vaccine at least eight weeks, if not 12 weeks apart. That probably translates into the best results. If you have two doses of AstraZeneca vaccine, you're certainly protected 95% of the time against severe disease, but you don't make quite as high a number of antibodies. If you have an AstraZeneca Pfizer vaccine, you're somewhere in the middle. So the answer is that um, we think you're fine with 12 weeks, you're probably fine with eight weeks, but less than that, uh, it's going to work most of the time, but it might not be quite as robust in terms of the protection you get than if you have a slightly longer gap, if you can have a longer gap mm. and and, uh, and you are not taking a risk in terms of not getting to the level of protection you need because of circulating disease activity. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, a lot of people in this country are having maybe three weeks between jabs. Should we be upset about this? Um there's always a concern where vaccines are concerned about coming in too soon with a booster. It's something Why? you can't rush. And the reason is that when you give the first dose, you prime the immune response and you start to build your notional house. And it takes time for that initial response to mature to a point where it's then susceptible to optimal boosting. And if you come in too soon with a re-stimulation, you can actually go in the opposite direction and you can tune down the immune response and detune it rather than boof it up. So the optimum appears to be to get a reaction, let the immune response settle and mature and then come in with a, another kick, which seems to translate into a greater fortification than if you come in too quickly. And it's finding what so that sweet spot is. Yeah, well, somebody's, I mean, asked us, for example... I had a two-week gap between the first and the second Pfizer jabs. Should I now get a third one? Well, the thing to consider is probably everyone's going to get boosted at some point anyway because very interesting paper that was published in Science Advances by uh, researcher Robert uh, Cedar, who is at NIH in Washington. He's, he's at the Vaccine, vaccine um, Centre in Washington. And I talked to him earlier this week because they've actually done the studies now using monkeys because monkeys develop a very similar illness to humans and therefore they're a really good analogue of, of human disease but equally human protection from vaccination so they've actually now done the studies and defined what is it that gives us protection from disease versus protection from infection because one of the questions floating around is well hang on i've been vaccinated so why am i still seeing people catching this thing and passing it on potentially which is the other thing that's that's emerging from data now people are still catching it despite vaccination but they're not getting ill. How does that compute? Either you're immune or you're not. Isn't that right? And the answer is no, it's not right. You need different levels of antibody to protect you from severe disease versus protect you from actually getting infected and being infectious. And, and that's what they're publishing this week. And the evidence they have is that the higher the levels of antibody you have in your bloodstream, the more protected you are both against severe disease in your lungs, but either but being susceptible to catching and potentially passing on the infection in your upper airways. And if you drive the infection, uh, the, the 
antibody titer right up with either infection or repeated immunisation, you can achieve a higher likelihood that you'll be prevented from catching the infection versus uh, just being protected by from severe disease. And so I, I suspect, and this is what is at the, ba- at the, at the foundation of governments in a number of countries outlining initiatives to boost people a period of time after initial challenge with the vaccine or infection in order to make sure their antibody titers stay very high because that should help to block transmission of the infection through the population and and I strongly suspect that at least in the early days of this uh, pandemic um, being managed with vaccines that there will be a booster program especially for people judged to be higher vulnerability. Can a vaccinated person spread the disease? Uh, Almost certainly. And the evidence that we have for that is I personally have handled cases where we've had people die despite being double vaccinated. And when they died of it, they were highly infectious for it because we could detect it in our laboratory. So yes is the answer. But what's probably being referred to with that question more is a person who isn't obviously severely ill but still succumbs to infection could they pass it on and the answer is yes because if you've caught the infection and you're growing virus in your nose and there's enough there for you to trigger a positive test there's going to be virus leaving your body now there might be a bit less virus leaving your body you might not be as infectious as someone who has a rip-roaring infection unchallenged by any kind of prior immunization or prior defenses but you're still almost certainly going to be infectious and therefore close contacts of you could catch it from you are there other variants chris that we should be worried about Uh, Well, you know, Donald Rumsfeld, who was the US Secretary of Defence, died recently. And he was the one who famously said there are known knowns, known unknowns and unknown unknowns. And this virus fits all those three challenges. And there are certainly unknown unknowns still to come. And we don't know what twists and turns it's going to take. But what we do know is how to detect them. And uh, the UK has actually led the way on this. A a wonderful project called COG UK, which was the consortium for the genomics of coronavirus. Um, They have sequenced 700,000 samples of coronavirus infection and, and created the sort of playing field genomically that enables us to understand how the virus is changing and this is being rolled out across the world now so that we have a sort of surveillance system and more and more countries are coming on board and this gives us a giant radar screen for genomically what the virus is doing and it enables us to keep tabs on these things but we're always playing catch up and it's very similar to what we've done for the flu for decades where samples of influenza are sent into a network of thousands of laboratories coordinated by the World Health Organization and they are charted and tracked and tested against the vaccines that we currently have asking the question were this circulating tomorrow would these vaccines block this and as soon as researchers detect that the dominant direction of travel of the flu is in the direction that vaccines give less protection against, they update the vaccine. I foresee that we'll be, at least for a while, tracking this new coronavirus in the same way in order to anticipate possible handbrake turns and swerves and curves that it takes in order to potentially sidestep the vaccine so that we keep step with it. What type of an idea, Chris? Because it seems to have settled down there. Say that again? 
What's happening in India? It seems to have settled down there. It seemed to be apocalyptic for a while. What now? Well, the the nature of the beast is that viruses will take a path of least resistance and they'll transmit between individuals who are infectious and susceptible. And they will... uh, pass from one to the other whenever offered the chance to do that and what offers them the chance to do that is people not uh, following public health guidance mass gatherings uh, big populations of people who are susceptible but as soon as you start to get a big surge and high transmission rates of course what you then get is a reaction on the part of people people resort to public health measures that work but also people become immune or unfortunately lose their lives. And so you end up with the, the wave goes through and it leaves in its wake a population who are dead or better and immune. And as a result, you do see boom and bust cycles with uh, all kinds of outbreaks, and this one's no exception. So India had a very dramatic time. Yes, we saw those harrowing pictures. We also understand that the scale of that outbreak was significantly more than was reported internationally. They, they were only documenting a very tiny number of the, the real number of cases. I mean... One estimate I read was that not 400,000 deaths, but 4 million deaths um, were, were actually what was occurring. With that scale of outbreak, you're going to create a, a virological or biological equivalent of a very big firebreak because of immunity that you confer on the susceptible people. And that helps to paint the virus into a corner, at least for a while, and the fire dies down. And that's what's happened. I'll just throw in apparently disconnected questions um, that I spot uh, amidst the heap of them that have come in, actually. Um, This one says, herd immunity is rubbish because the vaccine, this is not a question, really, it's a statement. I'll ask you to respond to it. Herd immunity is rubbish because the vaccines remain in the thyroid glands for only three to four months. The total population would need to be topped up constantly if the borders are to be reopened. Vaccinated people can still carry COVID-19 and spread it. The rationale for vaccination is increased resistance only. Well, the second part of that is true. What about the first part? Herd immunity is rubbish. Um, One has to address this from the perspective of what are we trying to achieve? And I think this was really well crystallised by the instruction that Prime Minister Boris Johnson gave to Kate Bingham, who led the UK Vaccine Task Force. And he famously phoned her up and it is said said to her you have to stop people dying so the instruction to the vaccine task force was we need to stop the dying not we need to get rid of covid we need to eradicate this thing we need to eliminate this thing we need to we need to pursue a zero covid strategy it was to save lives and that is the correct perspective through which to view this thing because getting rid of this virus is impossible And I know there are some people that are clinging desperately to the notion that that is possible, but it's not. With 8 billion people nigh on on Earth, 7 billion of them either vaccinated or immune because they've been infected, that leaves an enormous pool of people to continue to circulate, propagate and evolve this virus for many years to come. And we're not going to vaccinate that lot anytime soon. It's going to take a very long time to get to the world population. So therefore, of viewing this as an endemic problem, which continues to circulate, is the only way realistically for most of the world population to regard the state of play. And with that in mind, you ask, well, what do we want the vaccines to do? What we want them to do is to convert what would be a lethal infection for some into a trivial infection for everyone. 
like we do with the flu. Now, what happens with, with things like the flu and the common cold? There are other coronaviruses that come every winter and they, they cause a handful of the um, cases of, of the common cold in the population. Those are not a serious problem for older people who catch them because those people have been catching those viruses throughout their lifetimes so they have an underlying degree of immunity or resistance and just catching these things from time to time tops up that immunity and for them make sure that it's not a lethal infection were they meeting some of these things for the first time in their lives in their frail elderly state then any kind of severe acute viral infection could cause you to lose your life we, we know the flu does that and it's that familiarity immunologically with it that enables you not to have that outcome and what the vaccines do is short circuit that equation and make it look to your immune system as though you have been catching these things for a really long time which is why you then don't become desperately ill if you encounter them and that's exactly what's happening in the uk at the moment we've got uh, lots of older people who are catching this and they are asymptomatic with the infection so really that's the the goal to pursue it is to make sure that what would otherwise be lethal for some is trivial for everyone. What I'm reading from your initial statement of your new optimism based on the results of the lifting of restrictions in England is that Boris Johnson was right and those 1,200 scientists who signed the petition saying, don't do it, Boris, they were wrong. Uh, what people did, I, I don't know if it was 1,200 or 120, um, there was certainly a letter to The Lancet penned by over 100 scientists uh, from the UK and they urged caution. I don't think they were saying, don't do this. I think what they were saying was, do not abandon all of the considerations and constraints all at once because people need to be mindful that we still have the potential to have pressure on our health service because people were pointing out that although the link between uh, people catching coronavirus and becoming sufficiently ill that, that they'll need to go to hospital although that has been sufficiently and significantly weakened it hasn't been completely broken so we have still seen an uptick in people going off to hospital so if everyone parted like mad and spread this thing around like mad we would see much bigger numbers and that would have consequences and we didn't want that to happen but certainly i think that that people need to to perhaps um put their confidence and faith in what the vaccines are doing at least at the moment coupled with nice warm weather people being out and about schools being off more people being on holiday fewer people on public transport because it's the holiday season and these factors are all helping to keep numbers under control and at the same time we're, we're emphasizing to young people that that they're potentially at risk too so they should get vaccinated as well and i'm hoping this puts us into a really strong position come the autumn because that's the testing time we shouldn't be looking at how we're doing now we need to be looking at how are we going to be doing in the autumn because in the autumn it's always a trying time for health services because everyone's back to back to work back to the office back to school and that's normally a hotbed catalyst that drives enormous numbers of cases and big lots of outbreaks because of lots of people mixing together in various ways again and that's when the pressure will be brought to so that's what we need to prepare for. Um, just top up, if you wouldn't mind, the question I asked you earlier about immunity and the fact that the antibodies or the immune reaction only lasts for a certain amount of time in the thyroid. Does that make any sense to you? Uh, no, that's not right. The thyroid gland in your neck uh, produces thyroxine, which is an important hormone that controls your metabolic rate. I, I think the person is probably referring to the thymus, which is a different part of your immune system and is in your chest, actually, in front of your heart. 
and is much less important in older people but very very important in young babies and it disappears largely as we get older it's basically lymphocyte school it's university for for white blood cells which uh, is where you educate your t-cells and turn them into a fighting force to be reckoned with um this is not actually correct what the person is saying the way these vaccines chiefly work is they're intramuscular injections and if we take the Pfizer vaccine that's being used in New Zealand for example this is a short piece of genetic information called mRNA which is a chemical relative of DNA which is single-stranded unlike DNA that's double-stranded and it is the recipe for part of the spike the bit that sticks out from the surface of the coronavirus particle and which enables the virus to bind onto and enter our cells by packaging that piece of genetic information up into an oily droplet which gives it the ability to circulate and rub up against cells and then deliver by effectively almost like two soap bubbles merging together these little bubbles pop into the sides of cells and they deposit that genetic cargo into the cell the genetic recipe is read in the cells of the muscle where the uh, injection is placed and the muscle cells then make small amounts of the coronavirus protein which is presented to the immune system both there but also at regional lymph nodes and at the lymph nodes you educate your immune system how to make antibodies and also some t-cells white blood cells that recognize coronavirus and that is what gives you your immunity it's it's all a, a happening really at a local level and and there isn't much transport around the body of that entity thank you for that and back to the prevailing concern judging by a lot of the listeners questions if one is scheduled, based on what you said was the optimum period between the first Pfizer jab and the second, if one is scheduled to have the second within two or three weeks from the first, should they cancel, postpone, delay? Uh, personally, I, I, if it was me, I would. I, I'd go for a longer gap because the clinical trials used four weeks, so you're actually undercutting the, the clinical trials and you could argue that the trial done by the UK on most of the UK population uh, has used a much longer gap of eight weeks or 12 weeks. And that has produced very robust, very successful data showing it works. So uh, two weeks, I think there's very little data for that. Um, I would go for at least four and um, possibly longer if you can. Well, that's catamount pigeons. What happened, says um, one of a number of people, to the Spanish flu. There was no vaccination for it. It killed gazillions. Um, and now it's gone away. Why isn't this going to be the same, short of killing gazillions, but maybe it might? Well, the Spanish flu, which occurred in the 1918 um, series, that conservatively killed 40 million, possibly as many as 100 million people around the world mm -hmm. in the year that it circulated because the way flu tends to operate it tends to circulate and arrive in any given geography coincident with the autumn slash winter in that geography and there's a number of reasons why it does that the 1918 series was slightly different because it was aided and abetted by world war one and we've got quite good evidence that the massive movements of people and marshalling of people being removed back from france to various european nations almost certainly amplified this very dramatically but what it did do is lead to a catastrophic outbreak all around the world and it went where the people went and it did claim 50 plus million lives 
But in the same way that coronavirus will claim a very significant number of lives among the vulnerable whom it hits to start with, what does it leave in its wake? It leaves in its wake people who are dead or people who are immune and better. And that's exactly what the flu did. And you end up with the flu then continuing to circulate, but it struggles to gain as much traction as it once did because it's largely fighting an uphill battle now because all the people it meets have got at least partial immunity, having seen it once already. And that's sort of what coronavirus will do. People might be able to catch it again. We are seeing reinfections with the new coronavirus in people who've already had it, but they're not getting severely unwell most of the time. They're just catching a trivial infection. Again, one of our broadcasters, Andrew Marr, uh, he got double jabbed. He went off to the G7 and uh, reckons he caught coronavirus there despite being double jabbed because within the incubation period later, he was diagnosed positive with a PCR test, took uh, his mandatory 10 days off, had a fairly trivial illness and was back at work presenting his show a week later. So um, we we think that's why... Um, that we're seeing big death toll with coronavirus to start with and then it, it, it would, left to its own devices, settle into just becoming a seasonal infection. And in fact, we have historical evidence that one of the other human coronaviruses called OC43 might have been a, a pandemic virus in the late 1800s. There was what people thought was a big surge in flu, which wiped out a lot of people and made a lot of people dramatically unwell back in the in the um, turn of the century, turn of the last century, including members of the British aristocracy who died of that. And the evidence points to it possibly being a big outbreak of a coronavirus. And what's it done? Wiped out the people who were susceptible and then joined the ranks of the sorts of viruses that circulate relatively benignly, seasonally thereafter that's what the new coronavirus will do given enough time to sort of reach a dynamic equilibrium with human immunity as a population last question when um the answer to this one is that i think i think <laughs> we are beginning to see the beginning of the end now and um by that i mean as in of the acute phase in countries that are monitoring and detecting this but it's going to be a very long tail, this one, because of the magic number I mentioned earlier, which is 8 billion people on Earth. And about a billion of them have probably had this or got vaccinated. And therefore, probably the vast majority, 7 billion, still remain susceptible or uh, capable of, of reinfection and an amplification of further outbreaks. And most of them in resource poor countries, third world countries, um, countries where accessing vaccines is difficult and it's going to take a while to make enough vaccine resources to get vaccines onto the ground and then into the arms of people in those countries that will rein this in and keep it under control but i think countries will look at what's happening in the uk where 90 percent of adults have antibodies and at least one dose of vaccine under their belt and in their arm and 72 percent have double jabbed and they'll realize many countries that actually um probably they can depend and rely on these vaccines to keep people safe and there'll be a, a slow re return to normality in most countries. Of course, what New Zealand and Australia face is a challenge because by being very, very agile and off the mark to start with and getting very good control to start with, you've now unfortunately ended up in a gilded cage situation where you have very low levels of COVID, but it's dictating your life um, because unfortunately, yeah. either way, whatever happens... As soon as you open things up, you're going to get cases and they're going to come in a rush. 
And um, the only way not to have that is to get 100% vaccination in your population and then be very, very well prepared for the fact you are going to get breakthrough in cases when it comes and when it comes in a rush or you do what you're doing and uh, and live in a wonderful part of the world and stay isolated. <laughs> no, there's no easy answer to this. A bird in a gilded cage. Yep, yep, got that message. Very quick question and a quick answer, please. If the vaccination hurt makes your arm sore, somebody says, can I have it in my leg instead? It's an intramuscular injection. And so that means if you really want to, you can have it in your bum. Um, choice is yours, but it just has to go intramuscular. Um, other than that, I think it's up to you where you want it. Excellent to talk to you. Thank you. Um, good clarification. Talk again soon. Thanks, Kim. Virologist. And uh, have, a, have a lovely weekend, everybody. Smith.